As I stand before you this evening, as always, we each, I'm sure, feel so appreciative and thankful, even as was expressed in the prayer a moment ago, that God has allowed us to assemble and to gather at this place on this first day of the week to render an acceptable and wholesome worship to Him and to lead to the mutual benefit of each of us, of course, as well. As you may well know, and perhaps this is another opportunity to encourage us in that Bible reading program as we intend to read through the Word of God this calendar year. As you know, that presently brings us to a statement that follows even as you see it written here. We've now read roughly 3% of the Word of God as we've some total 37 chapters in our reading. In so doing, that's been focused in the books of Matthew in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, the books of Genesis and Job. And we continue this present week also in that book of Job. As you give some thought to that, this particular lesson this evening will be from the earlier parts of that Old Testament reading this past week. As we cast the spotlight on the days of Abraham, the considerations about him and the blessings that were poured upon him, that brings us to some of those comments on that slide. What a special individual he was. In fact, more than once in the sacred scriptures, he himself is termed explicitly the friend of God. There are very few in the Bible who are expressly called by that name, but yet he was. In James 2, for instance, verses 23 and following, this gentleman, namely Abraham, he in fact did obediently that which God declared, and in that way he was called the friend of God. As you and I give thought to what may flow from that consideration this evening, we might in fact prompt ourselves to ask, are you and I as obedient as He and might we thus be also called the friend of God? Let's give some thought to how this lesson unfolds and we'll see if we can apply some of those considerations to us even as the lesson moves forward. There was a stunning set of events, of course, in the life of Abraham, and we'll be somewhat selective in those that we choose to consider. But I would invite you to revisit the promise that the God of heaven made to him. And as we develop and make considerations of that promise, we shall reach some thoughts about the promises that he has extended to us as well. The saga begins, of course, quite frankly, as far back as the days of the flood. When you and I give thought to the chronology as it's presented in Genesis, we learn pretty quickly that from the time of God's creation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, 1,656 years pass until the heavens were opened and the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the floodwaters covered the planet on which you and I now live. During that period of somewhat over a millennium and a half, we recognize that the evil that men chose to do became greater and greater until finally the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually, Genesis 6 verse 5. As you give appreciation to that nature, we well remember that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That text of Genesis 6 verses 8 and 9, so grand in its presentation, he found grace. And that grace identified the fact that God presented to him a system of instruction. And upon his faithful compliance thereto, he and his family, all those aboard the ark, were saved. That still is the basic definition of grace, isn't it? It is the extension of a system of instruction whereby those who comply with its terms and conditions can and will receive the benefits and rewards thereof, namely deliverance or salvation. You'll notice that that brings us to give thought to what Noah accomplished. 
The Hebrew writer was very clear, wasn't he? In Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of himself and his family, whereby he condemned the world in righteousness. It is interesting, isn't it, that with that presentation, you notice that the year then that you and I can consider to be the year of his death... We are told in in the book of Genesis that he died at the age of 950, almost a millennium. He died in the year 2006 a.m. That latter phrase, a.m., is anno mundi, in the year of the the world. In so doing, you'll notice three short years later, a mere three years after after the very death of Noah, you find with me that there was a little baby boy born to Tira and his wife. That little boy was named Abram. Amazing, isn't it, that here the very birth of the one who would cast such a long shadow over the fullness of the Old Testament and really even in the reality of the New, Abram was born. As you give thought to that nature, if you'd wish to consider its year, 2009 a.m. was the year that in fact Abram was born. The very birth of that little boy quickly brings us to Genesis chapter 12 in which a number of promises were made to him. By this time he had reached the age of 75. So you'll notice a number of years had passed and to him at that point God expressly said, You shall have a great name. You will be a blessing to all. Land will be provided to your heirs, to your descendants. Furthermore, as you give thought to the fact that all who will look upon you will consider a blessing from the nature of what you stand for. All of that found, quite frankly, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. At the age of 75, these promises were made to him. He was already married by this time. His wife was 10 years younger than he. Her name was Sarai. If you pause with me to give consideration, here on the stage of time had come a very noteworthy individual, the man Abram. Looking at that which follows, we find that Abram was exceedingly blessed by God. So much so that in Genesis 13, we notice clearly that he, as well as his nephew Lot, both of them were blessed with silver, with gold, with cattle. Both of them, in fact, had such large numbers of these cattle that their herdmen had a bit of a contention about who, in fact, should dwell in particular areas of the land. Amazing, isn't it, that following that, we notice that they separated. Abram recognized the contention. He saw the quarrel, and he, in fact, made the offer. Lot, you choose the particular way in which you would dwell, and I will choose the other. If you proceed to the left, then I will take the right. If you proceed to the right, then I will take the left. As Lot lifted up his eyes, he saw the well-watered plains of the Jordan River Valley. And he chose to pitch his tent in that direction you and I would call eastward. That was, of course, the place in the direction of the Dead Sea. As he made that choice, Abraham, of course, journeyed the opposite direction. It is on that occasion I would invite you to notice the next few chapters surround the character of this man Abraham. You'll notice very easily with me that in chapter 14 he was a very loyal man to his family. When Lot 
was captured as well as the women of his family was captured by the kings. It was Abraham who was able to take a number of his servants and a number of those loyal to him and he rescued Lot. You do find also as those other chapters proceed, pretty easily here is an interesting lesson. It is here that you and I observe the amazing feature of the wisdom of choices. After all, we noted earlier that Lot was given the opportunity to choose, and he chose that direction that pointed ultimately in the city of Sodom. In fact, earlier when he made that choice, Sodom was in the distance. However, you'll notice that by the time we reach chapter 18, he pitched his tent in Sodom. He was drawn to the place of that evil. He and his family moved ultimately in that direction, and oh, what a soreness it was. Isn't it interesting that Peter, later in 2 Peter 2.9, will make reflections on this very comment. And beginning in verses eight, verse 8 of that same chapter, this lot was vexed day by day as his soul was surrounded by the iniquity and sinfulness of that locale. May I suggest that that at least challenges all of us to be very wise in our choices. He chose what he thought perhaps would be the better, but it certainly was not the better in the long run. Have you ever stopped to ponder ultimately the terribleness with which his family was beset by that choice? Ultimately, his daughters fell in love with men of Sodom. And even when the angels hastened he and his family out of it, the boys would not leave. They were too attached to the sin of Sodom, too attached to what was going on there, and they refused to leave it. Ultimately, his wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. All of that because of the choices that he made. Doesn't it warn us about what can happen as years roll by in our families and what can come to pass? Oh, how we need to pray fervently, earnestly, frequently, and often for the blessing of God on ourselves that our choices might be wise. That wisdom brings us to, in fact, another Old Testament character. Solomon, we well remember he too chose rather unwisely on many occasions. Although he was a wise man at the outset of his reign as king in 1 Kings chapter 3, he didn't seemingly dwell that way for the remainder of his life. Isn't it true that in chapter 11 of 1 Kings he chose very unwisely? Thankfully we can hear him say though in Ecclesiastes 12, this is the whole duty of man, fear God and keep His commandments. I would suggest as we draw that to its conclusion, it opens up the next episode in that promise. For after all, God in this particular statement had stated to him that thy seed, did you notice the reading earlier as Brother Wendell read it for us? Thy seed shall be as the stars of the heaven. If they can be numbered, so too will your seed be numbered. God had made reference, had He not, to the seed of Abraham. That now brings us to the next chapter, if you please, in, in the unfolding interest of this, in, the, in this matter. Chapter 15. In that chapter, we immediately notice that a number of years have now passed. To be specific, ten years have elapsed. That now means that Abraham is 85 years of age and his wife Sarai is 75. They had reached beyond the point of being parents, if you will. That, that age in life had gone. 
But now we notice that God's promise earlier had specifically made reference to His seed. It's no wonder that Abraham was confused. It's no wonder he was rather perplexed. God, you've promised that seed from me shall in fact be a great blessing to the human family. But I have no child. My wife Sarai is barren. Furthermore, you'll appreciate that Abraham was now so interested in this matter, he even entered into conversation with God. In verses 2, 3, and 4 of Genesis 15, we find that Abraham in conversation says, Shall this Eliezer, my steward from Damascus, shall he be my heir? Abraham well knew that the promises of God required an heir, but at this point he had none. As this chapter proceeds, we first find God attempting to clarify the very mindset of Abraham. This Eliezer, Abraham, of which you speak, he shall not be your heir. It shall be one of thy bowels. It would in fact be a portion, a piece, one that would literally follow from your loins, Abraham. That seemingly offered some clarification, but you'll notice what it next did. As God made that statement, attempting to clarify that very idea, that now still reminds us that Sarai was 75 years old and Abraham was 10 years her elder. At this point, what was to happen? Well, you and I noticed so quickly that Abraham and Sarah, and it was her particular suggestion first, offered some un unwarranted assistance to God on this matter. And you'll recall with me what unfolded. As chapter 16 began, it was she who suggested to her husband, Abraham, Take my handmaid, Hagar. Let her be a concubine to you. And in so doing, perhaps, the seed to which God referred shall be the one born to you and her. You'll notice the suggestion that has been made. Take unto you my handmaid, Hagar. Allow her to be your concubine. Go in unto her and bear children by her. It shall be still of your fruit, of course, and in so doing, perhaps this is the plan that God had in mind. As you give thought to some comments on that slide, Abraham did what his wife suggested. She, with Hagar was made his concubine. He went in. She did conceive by Abraham. You'll notice that many statements are now made in chapter 16. The angel, in fact had some things to say to Hagar relative to that boy that she was to bear. That boy, in verse 12, is said, He will be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand shall be against him. It is true, the angel said, He will be blessed because he is of, of the seed of Abraham. As you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, something, oh, very troubling came to pass. Remember that Sarai first had this suggestion, and yet when she saw that Hagar conceived, she despised Hagar. Not only that, it came to pass, of course, that Hagar also despised Sarai. Can you imagine the tension in this household with those two women at each other's throat? Can you imagine the tension in this household when those two were unable to get along? And yet that's the very thing that transpired. 
Oh, the difficulty and perhaps the sleepless nights that came Abram's way due to his attempt to help God where God did not need his help. Might we suggest on that occasion that the next element in the story proceeds like this. On this slide, you'll easily see with me that Hagar ultimately was forced to flee. That disagreement that existed between her and Sarai forced her exit, her flee. And you'll now notice, though, that she did give birth in chapter 16. She gave birth to a boy whose name was Ishmael. At this time, you might take note with me, Abraham was 86 years of age when Ishmael was born. At that point in his life, we find that God again in chapter 17 reappears to Abraham and restates to him with clarity the promise, the covenant that he had made before. The terms of this covenant again were these, Ishmael will not be the heir to which I referred. God had already stated it was not to be Eliezer and now he stated although Ishmael is in fact the one that was born to you in Hagar, he is not the one that I had in mind. The one I have in mind will be born to you and Sarah. You can only imagine, I suppose, the continued confusion that existed. He was already 86 years old. She was already 76 years of age. However, God's terms were such that it was expressly to them. In fact, to confirm that, He even changed their names. Abram, no longer will that be your name. You shall be called Abraham. And as far as Sarai, she shall be called Sarah. It was on this occasion as a final statement of confirming that covenant, he instituted circumcision. Abraham, at the age of eight days old, all males that are descendants of you shall be circumcised. As you give thought to that attribute of circumcision, You'll notice that interestingly leads us to the closing verses of chapter 17 and through the fullness of chapter 18. And so as Abraham himself and those of his household, the males were circumcised, it leads us to notice that some angelic visitors came his way in chapter 18. These visitors had in store the interesting information and the powerful message that Sodom was going to be destroyed it and Gomorrah alike. As this information, in fact, was shared with Abraham, we notice that Abraham, recognizing that Lot dwelt in that location and locale, and he took upon himself to bargain on behalf of Sodom. God, if 50 can be found righteous there, will you still destroy it? God agreed that He would not, and that bargaining continued. Suppose 45 are found righteous there, shall you still destroy it? And God again said that He would not. That number continued through 40 and through 30 and through 20 and through 10. If 10 righteous are found in Sodom, will you destroy it? And God said no. With that, the curtain closes on chapter 18. It opens on chapter 19. And we find that those angelic visitors left where Abraham was and made their way to Sodom. There they conversed with Lot. You may remember as those gentlemen came into the city, they had the appearance of men, and the men of Sodom were so worn at wishing to know them that they came to the house of Lot and beat upon the door, begging him to bring out the men that we may know them. 
they had a desire, you see, for more than just friendly conversation around the local athletic field. They wanted more relations than that. Lot pleaded with them, don't act so wickedly. Don't do this. These are guests in my house. However, the men of the city would not be dissuaded. In fact, so excited were they, they were prepared to break down the door to acquire and obtain access to these visitors. These angelic visitors struck the men of the city with blindness, and they proceeded to hasten Lot and his family. Exit this city because the God of heaven shall destroy it for its sin and its iniquity. We can see yet again how that the homosexual tendencies of that city were just a part of the iniquity that was to be found there. As the later verses of chapter 19 tell us, again, ultimately only three exited, Lot and his two daughters. As they did so, we notice that God rained brimstone and fire, Genesis 19, verses 24 to 26 on that city. And even to this day, we recognize the destruction that followed. The ending of that which was so evil in the sight of God. Isn't it somewhat interesting that perhaps at this point, you and I too can pause for another moment of interest. This lesson I have there on that particular slide. Isn't it still interesting that here, the difficulties that have so often been seen in the human family, especially in the Middle Eastern part of the world, and the fact that they have dwelt and been caused by what ought never to have been. God had a plan in mind. Abraham and Sarah were to bring forth, and it was to be that son of promise that would be the one through whom the seed of Abraham would be a blessing to the human family. It would be through that one that there would be, of course, ultimately the blessing of land and the blessing of all that went with it. Abraham and Sarah chose to try and offer assistance where God did not need it. There ought never to have been an Ishmael. There ought never to have been that attribute and that clan of family. For that reason, consider this with me. That particular group of people who have in fact come from that union of Abraham and Sarah. We often call them the Arabs. And yea, for now ever since that time, they have been at war with the Israelites. And may I suggest, I strongly suspect that it shall be so until the end of time. They have not been able to get along. Later, when the children of Israel left Egyptian bondage and proceeded to wander through the wilderness, among the groups of people who caused such a thorn in the side of them were none other than the very descendants of the Arabs. As you well know, in the years since... To this day, you have the Palestinian Arabs led by one group of people. You have the Israelites led by another. And more than one war has been fought between them because they want the same land and they consider themselves the same recipients of the promises of the Old Testament. It is interesting to this day, of course, that that parcel of land that they hold so dear is now quite often, of course, housed under the Muslims. And they, in fact, have a temple resting on that place they hold so dear. As you and I give thought to that thought again, it was help that God did not need. Maybe that's a lesson for you and I as well. Sometimes we think that we need to offer help to God when He doesn't need our help. He needs our obedience. He wants our obedience. He wants our faithful, humble, dedicated service. 
it's not us to call the shots. And it's not us to change the church to fit what we want. It's our business to be simply those who would say, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Acts 9 verse 6. It is our position who, perhaps like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, 8 would say, Here am I, send me. We sing a song in our songbook sometimes like that. Here am I, send me. Well, that ought to be our motivation, our thought, our objective. It's not our business to fit the matters of theology and the matters of heaven because God has already termed and dictated that, hadn't He? You might notice as we close that slide, so often the Bible encourages us in this way toward humble and faithful obedience. In Psalm 131, verse number 1, even David recognized the fact that he did not concern himself with matters too high for him. There are some things too high for us. Wasn't it true that even Paul in Romans 12, 16 could say, so powerfully, be not of conceited mind. As you and I recognize that danger perhaps brings us to what is left in this lesson this evening. So far we've seen the promise and we've seen their unwarranted assistance. Perhaps it's time to come to what's left. The fulfillment on God's terms. The son of promise. It brings us to chapters 20 and 21. It is with that thought in mind we arrive at this. And I would ask you to pause as we start that slide. Think again about the ages of Sarah and Abraham. He was 86. She was 76 when this matter concerning Ishmael came to fruition. But God then had to remind them that's not the plan. Consider with me the passage of 13 more years. Not just one, not just two, but 13 additional years, bringing him to the ripe age of 99, she to the ripe age of 89. Still they had no son. Still they had no heir. Still they had no seed. By this point, both are long past childbearing age. May I suggest to you, that God's promise was still waiting in the wings. His promise was still stated. It was still ready. Let's then appreciate the way in which God brought about the fullness of that promise. Chapter 21, verses 1, 2, and 3. God again appeared to Sarah. He, in fact, blessed her. And you'll notice that as Abraham and Sarah did then bring forth, she conceived... And it was a son. She was pregnant with a baby boy. And I remember, she was 89 years old. As that son was in fact brought forth, you'll notice that they named him interestingly. He was named Isaac. And that word means to laugh. And it brings back to mind the fact that she had laughed many years earlier when God told her she was going to bring forth a son. In fact, we find even on another occasion that Abraham laughed. They both thought it a bit funny, perhaps even near impossible. But may you and I notice that with God, all things are possible. Matthew 19, 26. As we give thought to what followed, you'll notice that ultimately she did give birth. And after the nine months had passed, she was the age of 90. Abraham, her husband, the age of 100 years old. Think about a man 100 years of age having a baby boy. 
and a woman aged 90 giving birth doesn't it indicate the blessing of God upon them. However, the problems that you and I had raised earlier were not to leave so quickly. Remember, there was now a 14-year-old boy named Ishmael who probably had thought he was to be the heir. And there was also his mother, Hagar, who also had a place in the household. And she and Sarah had had trouble years before. That trouble was to reappear again. After Isaac was born, Ishmael mocked Isaac. After all, there was 14 years of age between them. And as Ishmael mocked him, Sarah was not going to tolerate this. In fact, she had Abraham kick them out of the house. As you notice, they did leave. And the angel again appeared unto them in their journeys and in their travels. The angel had many words of comfort for Hagar relative to that boy, that boy that she had, namely Ishmael. These comments, I thought, were important to observe. As those angelic comments were made, it was the promise that he will be the father of many nations. Ishmael too, you see, was blessed. Later when we get to Genesis chapter 36, we shall find a whole host of nations who had ties ultimately back to him. And may we never forget that those nations were often so problematic for the children of Israel. It might be fair to say that Abraham's faith in chapter 22 then was tested, that son of promise. God said, Abraham, take that son, that son that you love, that son of promise, and go to Mount Moriah and offer a burnt offering unto me. Abraham dutifully prepared all that was needed, the wood. He took servants with him, and off he and Isaac went toward Mount Moriah. As they proceeded to journey for that place of worship, Genesis 22, 5, it's significant that even the boy, even Isaac, recognized, Father... The wood is ready and so too is all else, but where is the sacrifice? You can almost feel a tear stream down the face of Abraham when he himself knew what had to be done. And when they arrived at the place, he bound his son and put him upon the place ready to offer him upon the altar. And the hand of God, of course, stayed the very nature of that which was to take place, staying the hand of Abraham. A ram was found in the thicket. And it was the ram that was offered. The son of promise was spared. We later learn in the New Testament that Abraham's faith was so strong in Hebrews 11, he was even under the impression that if the life of Isaac was taken, God was able to bring him back to life. That's faith. Isn't that faith? Doesn't it challenge us to appreciate that this then is one of the final lessons of our consideration this evening? The amazing faithfulness of God. Isn't it marvelous to give thought to some things that might be described like this? So much time elapsed. You and I noticed earlier that God had said to Abraham when he was only 75 years old, leave the Ur of the Chaldees and all these other blessings including land and great name and blessing will follow. It was 25 years from that point until Isaac was born. 25 years. It seems to me that speaks volumes about the nature of God's faithfulness. God's timetable sometimes is not yours and mine. And furthermore, sometimes your timetable and mine is not nearly that of God. But God always does what's right. Genesis 18, 25. 
And He is always true to that which is His Word and His plan. That was true then, and it continues to be true now. You and I readily see that even in the New Testament, sometimes things don't happen according to what would be your preference and mine. We often want answers immediately. We often want immediate satisfaction. Sometimes in prayer, we pray earnestly for something, but it may be a year or two or more before God chooses to then bring about His will relative to that matter that you and I raised in prayer. Should you and I not rely then upon Him? 2 Peter 3.9 says it like this, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, for not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord is not slack. That word slack means unfaithful. He's not untrustworthy or unreliable when it comes to His promises, but He always carries out that which is His will. You'll notice another verse that seems to leap toward you and me in these matters is the very passage of Jeremiah 32, 17. Later in the days of Jeremiah, he too was surrounded by so many who were unfaithful and uninterested in the things of God. But God reminded him that God's arm is able to accomplish anything. God's arm is mighty and it's powerful. It's capable of ruling in the nations of the world. It's capable of overwhelming the thoughts of men. Jeremiah knew that. Ezekiel knew that. As you and I noted earlier, certainly the Lord Jesus Christ stated that as well. All things are possible with Him. Sometimes things may appear bleak to us. Problems in families and issues concerning matters that may appear so mighty. But yet, isn't it true that if God could orchestrate the affairs of nations to bring ultimately into the world the very one who was the final fulfillment of this promise to Abraham, He can certainly overrule in things related to your life and mine. The son of promise. You and I know that these promises made to Abraham Although he did look with such interest to that physical son named Isaac, born to he and Sarah, you and I know that ultimately that promise found its final fulfillment in the coming of the Son of God. And in Galatians chapter 3, Paul quotes much of these very chapters that you and I have studied tonight and says, Thy seed, which is Christ, the very seed of Abraham. And so today, though you and I live... 4,000 years roughly after the days of Abraham, we are still the grand recipients of the promises that God made to him. Promises where we don't live in that land of Palestine or Israel in the far eastern part of the world. You and I know that wherever we live, we, by obedience to the Father through Christ, can be the recipients of the very promises made to Abraham. Galatians 3 verses 28 and 29. Close that chapter and it says that you and I, you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond nor free. For if you're Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Are you then heirs according to the promise tonight? Are you an individual who recognizes that faithful obedience and all the blessings that you can have through Him? The final conclusion tonight is so easy in many ways to state. 
Abraham was a towering biblical figure. He will cast a long, long shadow. So long, in fact, that you and I can rest beneath the blessings of that shadow even today. As just noted, are you then a child of Abraham in the sense of you are at Christ's? If you are, then you know the blessing that you're able to appreciate and you know the reward that awaits those that are the faithful. But if tonight you're not a faithful member of the body of Christ, that is, you're not Christ's, you need to make that right this evening. You don't need to leave and go and wait until a more convenient time. After all, in the book of Acts, as far as we know, that more convenient time never came to those before whom Paul preached. Felix wanted one, but as far as we know, it never came. Tonight, this is the most convenient time. Everything is ready. The angels in heaven are excited to rejoice with you and for you. You just need to make it happen as you come forward. Brother Jeff has chosen the hymn of encouragement. We're going to stand and sing that. It's an opportune time, and that plan of salvation begs of you this. You need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His great name, and be baptized. If we could be of assistance to you, why not tonight? If you have been a faithful member of the body of Christ, you've known what that was like, but you no longer are. You've lived in shame. You've lived in infamy. You've lived in separation from God due to sins known publicly. Why not come back to Him? Why continue to live in that way? After all, you don't know if tomorrow's sun will rise, nor do you know when your death will occur. You need to be ready. The only way to be ready is to stay ready, and we could help you do that tonight. If you need to come forward confessing sins, we pray for you and with you, and God's promised to forgive you. Tonight, won't you come then while together we stand and while we sing?